Let me say a word before I get into this. That really brought tears to my eyes. And uh, thank you. We all pray, and we pray for the people we love. And in our family, we have some people we want to walk with Jesus who aren't. We're all there. And uh, one of my prayer requests, Cindy and I try to pray together. I won't say every morning because some mornings we don't. But we try to pray together. And one of the prayers I keep coming back to is, God, I long for the day where... My family can have these reunions and we can all talk about you and all love you and share you. I mean, honestly, guys, that's my heartbeat. I want my children and, and my sister and her, you know, I can't think of anything that would thrill my heart more than to be together with my family and Talking about Jesus not seem like something out of a spaceship, you know, or something. But there would be that connection. So, anyway, it was it's always a blessing to me to see uh, people love the Lord. So, thank you for that. And it made me think of, I know we're few in number, but it matters that we meet together. I was thinking of Hebrews 10, verse 25. Um, I know in the NIV it says... Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another. And all the more, as you see the day approaching. It matters that God's people come together with one heart, one mind, one voice, and worship Him. It matters that we encourage one another. Because the truth is, sometimes... Like Rob mentioned this morning, like Elijah, we feel like, well, Lord, I'm the only one that loves you. You know, we get these little pity parties. And someone has said the problem with the pity party is no one else wants to come. Right. And, you know, we've all kind of been there. But what a blessing to be family in Jesus Christ. I have always found that. Believers from different churches, but we all are in the church. So, okay, enough of my mini-sermon. I get to the other sermon. Um, we've been in Hebrews chapter 11, and tonight I want to spend some time looking at Noah. And uh, you don't think about it, but Noah's one of those guys. He could easily have been pretty lonely when you look at uh, where he lived and the people that were around him because there weren't a lot of God-fearing people around him. But let's look at uh, Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to look at a single verse tonight, verse 7. And I'll ask if you'll stand in our God's honor as I read. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes. By faith, let's pray. Father, thank you that Noah reached out beyond his eyes and his ears and his ability to touch. All those five senses, he reached out by faith, which is a trust in you that to those who don't understand seem really crazy. 
But Father, he was able to see where others could not see. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you that we have the Holy Spirit in us when we come to Christ as Savior and Lord. And we gain eyes of the heart that are able to see by faith. And um, as we spend some time tonight looking at the account of another hero in the hall of faith, Noah. Um, Father, may we see that faith and be encouraged as we discuss his faith about our faith, Lord. Because it's still in the same object, the Lord God who we can fully trust. So just guide us, Lord, as we look at your word. Speak well beyond my ability to speak. Holy Spirit, touch our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, Paul Bunyan wrote a famous book for hundreds of years in Christian circles called Pilgrim's Progress. And he was a, a preacher who in England, was not an Anglican. Basically, the the church and the country were wed together in England at the time, and if you were not part of the state church, you did not have a voice, and you could end up in jail if you preached apart from the Anglican faith. And he ended up in jail because his beliefs differed from the Anglican church. And they asked him, they said, well, Pastor Bunyan, you can go free if you'll simply stop preaching. And he said, if you let me out today, I'll be preaching tomorrow. And so he ended up staying in prison. But out of the time, he ended up in prison twice. But in that time in prison, he ended up writing this beloved book. And I just want to read a couple of paragraphs out of the book and and make some comments. Um, He says, in my, he had a, this is from the book. Talk about the character had a dream. He said, In my dream I saw a man clothed with rags, standing in a certain place with a book in his hand and a great burden upon his back. I looked and saw him open the book and read therein. And as he read, he wept and trembled, and he broke out with a lamentable cry, saying, What shall I do? He ends up going home, speaking to his family, and the... Another part of the book, he says, My dear wife, you and the children of my heart, I am in myself undone by reason of the burden that lies heavy upon me. Moreover, I am certainly informed that this our city will be burned with fire from heaven in which both myself with you, my wife, and you, my sweet children, shall miserably come to ruin unless some way of escape can be found whereby we may be delivered. His family was amazed at the message. But instead of believing in the message, they thought he had gone nuts. Totally cuckoo. Thought, well, maybe this bad dream has totally affected his thinking. And he just needs to get a good night's sleep so that he will think clearly. But after a good night's sleep, he still had this fear of a coming judgment upon his land. And upon the town in which they lived that would come. They derided him, they chided him, they neglected him, but he still could not get this off of his mind. This deep conviction that the town was in trouble and he was in trouble and he desperately needed help. So on in the book, um, he begins to cry 
And he says, what shall I do to be saved? He says, I saw a man named Evangelist coming. And he asked, why are you crying? He answered, sir, I'm condemned to die. And after that, to come to judgment, I fear that this burden that is upon my back will sink me lower than the grave. Then said Evangelist, if this be thy condition, why stand still? He answered, because I don't know where to go. Then said Evangelist, pointing with his finger over a very wide field, do you see that gate? The man said, no. Do you see yonder shining light? He said, I think I do. Then said Evangelist, keep that light in your eye and go up directly and you'll see the gate. And when you knock, it shall be told thee what to do. So I saw in my dream that the man began to run. Now, he had not run far from his own door when his family began to shout for him to return. The neighbors came out to see him run. And as he ran, some mocked, others threatened him. Some cried after him to return. But the man put his fingers in his ear and he ran out crying, Life, life, eternal life. Two neighbors ran after him to catch him by force. And when they managed to come into his presence, he said, You are dwelling in the city of destruction Be content, good neighbors. Come along with me and be saved. In the rest of the book, it describes the journey until he comes to the place of promise. And the scripture we're looking at today, as we look at the life of Noah, there's some similarities. He was in a land that was headed toward destruction. He stuck his fingers in his ears and he didn't hear the message that was popular in the culture that was around him that came from his neighbors. Instead, he heard a voice that others did not hear. For 120 years, he preached the truth that God gave to him. And for 120 years, he was called to do an incredible task of building an ark. (laughs) Of preparing for a judgment of a flood that was around the corner. And I want to just look at two aspects of his faith during that call. First, his faith is a personal profession in the midst of the unbelief. Look there in verse 7 again. It says, by faith Noah, which warned about things not yet seen. He was warned about what? He goes on down through here about a coming judgment. It says, by his faith he condemned the world. The world who had no room for God. The world who had turned away from God. And we're going to look at, turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to be looking at Genesis and the recorded account of his life. And of course, Genesis chapter 6 Verse 5, we read what it was like to live in that day. Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was evil all the time. Every thought was me, my, myself, I. Self-centered, wicked, evil all the time. And it says the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth. What a sad time to live upon the earth. It was a time as you study in the book of Genesis where there were demon-possessed men who corrupted 
the godly line of Seth with a cult-driven, sexually obsessed, violent, wicked behavior. And the heroes of Noah's generation were a people who chased after the flesh and the sinful nature with a passion and had no room for God. And when God looked upon the land, he said, I have had If you put together the different references in the New Testament with this time of evil being inclination in everybody's heart, the warning that our Lord gave, there are certainly some similarities. Uh, Luke seventeen twenty seven. there was a preoccupation with temporary matters. People only live in the moment. They don't think about death and eternity and what awaits. Uh, Genesis four twenty two. there's a rapid advancement in technology. That day, and of course we know that now. Uh, Luke seventeen twenty eight. interest bound up only in materialism. You can get all you can, can all you get, sit on the can, as they say. Uh, there's an inordinate devotion to pleasure and comfort, Genesis four twenty one. No concern for God in either belief or conduct, Second Peter chapter 2, verse 5. A total disregard for the marriage covenant, Genesis chapter 4, verse 19. 1 Peter chapter 3, 19, a rejection of the authority of God's word. Rejection of authority. A population explosion in Genesis 6, 1. Widespread violence and the value of human life degenerates. Genesis 4, verse 23. Basically, the verse we just read in Genesis 6, 5, evil runs rampant throughout the society. Genesis 6.12, immorality, vice, and corruption are the normal patterns within human relationships. These are the days of Noah. And yet in the midst of that, in Genesis chapter 6, we read an amazing verse. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. And he walked with God. There are times where we feel alone, don't we? We feel like there's nobody else is walking with God. Nobody else loves God. That's not true. I mean, just look around you. There's people right beside you that love God, that walk with God. But Noah lived in a day, as we will see as we look at the passage, where he had to deal with a sense of where's everybody else that loves God, that follows God. Uh, secondly, faith He shows as a personal piety in the midst of uncertainty. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 11 and look again at verse 7. It says, in holy fear, he built an ark to save his family. He had a reverent heart in a dark world. He had a fear of God that led him to consider The importance of following God and turning to Him and the consequences that result to ignore God, to turn away from God. And in the midst of that, he heard God's call to build the ark. 120 years of building and 120 years of preaching with nobody responding. I mean, I'm not used to many people responding. But 120 years of preaching and nobody responding, that could bum me out. 
And, and that is what Noah had to deal with. And it's interesting because as you see the call that God gives to him. And he is unmapped territory. He's a farmer. And he's called to preach for 120 years. He's a farmer and he's called to build this big boat. And it's got specific instructions on how to do this. The largest boat known to mankind that weighed more than 18,000 tons and it sat out somewhere in his pasture. <laughs> what a call. Let's look at Genesis 6, starting at verse 13. and We can read about that. It said, God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you're to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. Wow, what a message. What a task to work on this ark. Um, now let's compare it. Most of us may not be engineers, but maybe we know have been to a football game or two. So let me use the dimensions of a football field. Maybe it'd help us gain some perspective on the size of this ark. Um, it's almost two football fields long. So get a picture of that. <laughs> the length of it, two football fields long. Nearly a football field wide. Tall enough to almost reach the nosebleed section of a stadium. The total deck area would have been 96,000 square feet with a total volume within the three decks of 1.3 million cubic feet. It's hard for me to even grasp all of that. But engineers who have studied this design to believe it to be one of the most stable ship designs. But it's not like a Queen Mary or a Titanic. It's more of a flat-bottomed barge that would simply float on top of the water with thousands of built-in compartments in order to house all of these animals, these air-breathing animals. And what's interesting here is that when you catalog the air-breathing animals and the room that was necessary, it would still only fill up half of the ark. So what was the other half of the ark for? God wanted people to respond. He didn't want just Noah's family on that ark. Because our God, as it says in 2 Peter 3, 9, He's patient, not wanting anyone to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. That's our God. And also, you'll find there's no reference in building this ark to oars, sails, an anchor, uh, or captain's wheel, or even a rudder to steer the ship. Why? Because God would be in charge of all that. God would steer this ark and this ship. He would be the captain of this vessel. And there are some that say, well, what about the fact there's more than a million different insect species? And in Genesis chapter 7, we'll go over chapter, we discover 
that the call is to get these animals on board who breathe through the nose, through nasal passages. But many of these insects do not breathe through nostrils, but through pores in their exterior skeleton. And so they were not part of those called upon the ark, but could survive on vegetation floating in the water. And God would take care of that. Supposing you get all 35,000 species of land, air-breathing animals on board in pairs, 70,000 animals, how in the world do you take care of them for a year, which is exactly how long Noah and his family floated on the ark? Well, I'm going to take a stab on this. I certainly am not going to say I have all the answers to this, but there's interesting here in Genesis chapter 6, verse 14. It says, so... Make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it. And coat it with pitch inside and out. The exact meaning of that word rooms. It's a translation they don't exactly have the answer to. Um, there are some scholars who believe you could translate the word nests. Which is a picture that there are compartments with nests for all of the animals. You see, we just think of it as this big open boat, but as he worked for 120 years, there's rooms inside of that massive ark that are specifically designed for these animals. And if there's a picture here of nests, it would be for those animals to stay for that year-long journey. And one commentator suggested, and it makes sense to me, that God possibly put those animals into a type of hibernation to sleep for that period of time. And you say, well, how could that be? How could he put all those animals to sleep? As you look at how God worked through animals throughout the Bible, uh, he did some pretty amazing things. We had some hungry lions <laughs> whose mouths were shut when they could have feasted upon Daniel. We had birds who were commanded to bring food to the prophet Elijah at a brook. We have a well that swallowed Jonah. And after a few days of Jonah having a heart-to-heart with God, he ended up uh, out of the well's belly and on the beached land. We had a fish who had tax money that Jesus had set up so that Peter could get his taxes paid. And then we had a donkey that we usually talk about not having a lot of sense, that God used to speak and to give uh, a, a powerful message. So God could certainly cause animals to fall asleep upon the ark. God certainly has that power. In chapter 8, verse 17, uh, we read, at that point, after the ark has landed, there is a command for the animals to multiply. And so before that point, it's not like you had two rabbits, you know, go up on the ark. And then after a couple months, you got 300 rabbits on the ark. You know, it didn't work like that, that point up on the ark. You know, that's another reason where it makes sense to me that they went into some type of hibernation while they were upon the ark. Genesis 6, verse 21, it talks about food that was brought forth for the animals. Uh, You are to take every kind of food that's to be eaten and stored away as food for you and for them. Well, if they were in a type of hibernation, then they would not need to eat every day. Uh, Maybe this was food to prepare them for when the ark did land. Uh, The food could get their systems moving again so that they could 
move out and transition back onto the land. I mean, after all, they left their natural habitat. I mean, this all has to be of God. I mean, it's not like Noah went on this big search to find every animal and coerce them to come into the ark. Hey, let's go, guys, come on. No, it just says they came. Why did they come? Because God led them there. And that is really a miracle. When I think about our dogs, I can't get them to do anything I want them to do. At time. You know, the one thing that seems to work appropriately is cheese. Works with my cats too. They love cheese. A, a slice of cheese. Or sometimes our dogs will get out and we'll rattle the dog food and they'll you know basically food works. They're not that different than us. Um, but here you have this miracle of God bringing forth these animals. I, I recently read about a film producer in Italy who was doing a movie upon Noah and the Ark. And there's a lot of time that was spent training some zoo animals to march into an ark that was created for the movie. But when the time came for the filming, a water buffalo got spooked and charged right into the ark and put a hole in the wall of this big ship that they had. That's the normal way things often happens. But when God's in control of something, hey, Atticus, it's not that normal. And God works. I mean, think about this job that Noah had. I mean, it had to be God-led. It just seems impossible to build these rooms, these nests for every land creature. God's got to be in charge of that. I mean, I'm thinking Noah wasn't like, this is no big deal. I mean, if I was not, I'd be thinking, God, what do I do with elephants? You know, I mean, this big job. What do you want me to do? Okay, uh, so we've looked at faith as a profession in the midst of unbelief. He um, and his family ended up on the ark. There were not scores of believers all around him. Then we learned that faith is the personal piety in the midst of uncertainty. He was giving jobs that he did not know what he was doing. But all God really wanted was him to walk with him. And he would use him appropriately according to God's call. Yeah, some objections about the flood... Um, that came in his promises in Genesis 7, verse 17 through 21. Look at that for a minute. Um, for 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth. And as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth. And all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered the waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind. There are those who look at Noah and the flood and they turn it into this folk tale that Moses wrote to give encouragement to God followers in his day. But if you look at the testimony of scripture itself. You see many of the prophets. Who spoke very clearly. About the fact of a flood. Isaiah in Isaiah 54 9. Talks about a worldwide flood. Ezekiel mentions Noah twice. As a righteous man. Luke includes Noah in the official genealogy of Christ. The apostle Peter uses the events of Noah and a global flood as an illustration of a coming global f- 
firestorm of God's wrath that is still to come in the future. And last but certainly not least, our Lord himself, Jesus Christ, used the flood as a reference to a coming judgment of the world in Matthew 24, 37 through 39. God's also left us a wonderful fossil record. And it's interesting that these fossils, these sea creatures, can be found all over the earth, even on the top of Mount Everest. (laughs) How in the highest point of the earth do you find fossils, unless there was water up there? In those upper parts. Matter of fact, many scientists who are believers uh, look at Psalm 104 to indicate uh, that after the flood, God raised mountains higher and the valleys between them and, and that there was an intervention by God that changed the topography of the earth during the flood. And between volcanoes and between floods, the power of natural forces can certainly change the makeup of the earth of Formations of rock. I read about one flood uh, where flood waters tossed 7,000 pound boulders over a breakwater wall and moved 65,000 pounds of concrete blocks, the distance of a football field. And this was just a flood in a small town. Uh, another flood I read about was a brief flood near Los Angeles that eroded and redeposited 100,000 cubic yards of earth debris and rock and then there was an avalanche in the andes where enough water rocks and mud literally buried two entire cities you see as we think about the movement of canyons that are carved in the earth they don't necessarily occur over millions of years but through a great movement of water a flood a great flood. The Grand Canyon, for instance, didn't need millions of years of erosions by Colorado River. It only needed the designing handiwork of a global upheaval as God erupted the fountains of the deep and covered the earth with a raging flood. Cataclysmic event. Okay, as I close, two, two lessons here that we learned from Noah. First, uh, faith is obedience despite the presence of obstacles. Think about his difficult task. He had to build this ark that took 120 years. He didn't have chainsaws. He didn't have power tools. (laughs) He didn't, man, he didn't, he didn't even uh, have a team of uh, masterful workers to help him. He's a farmer. (laughs) But he walked with God. And God gave him what was needed to do the task. So faith is obedience despite the obstacles. You think, I can't do this i can't follow god god doesn't call you to be an expert he calls you to walk with him he can use little peons like me and you you know i love the story of scott brown um, a presbyterian preacher Um, scott has a a radio show on many radio stations and he said years ago um, he was he was trying to do it was some kind of church program and he stressed himself to the point where he's about to have a nervous breakdown and his leadership came together and, and he was, oh, you know, I can't fail the church. I'm so worried about this. And he said, Scott, he said, do you think that God is not able to handle these problems? And he said, no, I guess God can handle the problems. He said, look, brother, 
He said, I love you. And he said, if God is going to fail somebody, I don't think he's going to start with a little peon like you. You know, maybe Billy Graham or some of these bigger guys. But, not, you know, God can use anybody, even me, even you. It's not a, a matter of how wonderful we are. It's a matter of how wonderful he is. Um, secondly, faith is obedience despite the lack of experience. He didn't know how to build boats. He didn't know how to tend elephants. <laughs> but he was faithful and willing to follow the call as God led him. Uh, he teaches. So, all right. As they say in the hills, uh, um, stick a fork in me, I'm done. So, <laughs> let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we are grateful for you, Lord. As we have taken time to look at this account of a hero in the hall of faith, Noah. Father, at times he must have felt desperately alone, Lord. But he never was alone. And neither are we. You have promised that I will never leave you nor forsake you. And God, when you call us to a task, you will give us what is needed to do the task. I thank you for your people here tonight. And Father, yeah, there's not many of us, but that is really not what matters the most. I mean, after all, God plus one is always a majority. And uh, so, Father, thank you that we share you. Help us, Lord. We do want to see you move in our lives and in the lives of our community and our families. You know, like the dream I shared about my family. I, I think we all feel that way. We just want to see you move. God, that is so exciting to think about. So if I'm in the way, then shake me, break me, remake me, Lord. And I pray that for my brothers and sisters here too. Because we want to see you elevated. You've promised that if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. We want that, Lord. As we have this time we call invitation, what do you want of us, Lord? As we stand to sing, tell us what you want of us, Lord. And may we say yes to what that is. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Grab a hymnal 678. 678. We are an offering. We lift our hands, we lift our lives up to you, we are an offering. Lord, use our voices, Lord, use our hands, Lord, use our lives, they are yours, we are an offering. All that we have, all that we are. Father, I agree with what we sang, Lord. 
May it be what we do as we walk out of here, Lord. Make ourselves an offering. Thank you for men like Noah who became an offering in a world where there was little of you. And help us, Father, to in a world where there is more of you, that we would be faithful. I thank you for your people. Thank you most of all for the Savior who has given us new hope, new life, and a new start. In his name we pray. Amen.